I am Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by Judith Winfrey and Joe Reynolds, the owners of Love is Love Farm, which is moving to a permanent space in Going Co-op. Hi, Judith and Joe. Thanks for being here. Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. So can you both take turns introducing yourself to listeners who might not know who you are? Yeah, I'll go first. I'm Joe Reynolds, and Judith and I have had a farm business called Love is Love Farm for the last 13 years, where we grow certified organic vegetables. We currently lease a property in Decatur from a group of homeowners called East Lake Commons, and it's been uh, an incredible experience. Judith and I really believe in being a part of the broader farming and food community, and so servant leadership's been a big part uh, of that for us. Judith's been, a, for me, really an inspiration to become more involved on that level, and so I also, for many years, was on the board of Georgia Organics, which was a great honor, and I got to be the chair for a couple of years, too, which was you know an additional honor as well. And I am Judith Winfrey. I am a co-owner of Love is Love Farm, LLC, as Joe said. And together, we also are in the process of converting our farm and joining with some other farmers to be Love is Love Cooperative Farm. And you guys, I don't think, you know, we'll get into just like your relationship and the farm, but I don't think a lot of people know that there are such a thing as landless farmers and how that is what you guys have been. You've been kind of taking care of this piece of land for this time. And now this is really you guys going and having your own piece, right? So that's a huge step. I mean, I met you guys literally, I don't even know how long ago, 15 years, even more like when Joe was literally manning the farm stand at Star Provisions. <laughs> so it's been quite the journey watching you guys. But you guys also are married. And like, was food something that connected you guys? Was it a love language for you? Was it eating food, growing food? What was it? I think it was food activism. So it definitely was food. But when I, so Joe and I met, I mean, yes, food <laughs> connected us. When Joe and I met, we were both working at the Brick Store Pub. Wow. And Joe was- What year was this? 2002, 2003. Okay early days of the brick store. Joe was the guy that like when I was on this, when you saw his name on the schedule with you, you were like, yes, it's going to be a good night because Joe knows how to work and he doesn't run his mouth too much. It's great. And so I kind of developed a little crush on him because of that. And also because he was doing this really cool food activism with this organization called Food Not Bombs. And he can tell you more about that, but it definitely like sparked my curiosity and and I think as we were like falling in love and our first one of our very first dates by the way was for the meal at the Hare Krishna temple on Sundays that they serve what's it called it's uh it's the they call their Sunday meal prashadam and it's uh when the uh, they open things up to guests to come and eat good food, but also learn about what it's like to, to be Ari Krishna as well. <laughs> but we had a lot of fun food dates in the beginning. Not all of them that might seem as close to the food that we do right now, but we also, um, one of our uh, first times really hanging out and spending time together was at the Corndogorama Festival oh, yeah. when it was still at the Earl in those days. And at the brick store, a lot of folks were in bands that played there as that, that, that were in bands as well. So many of them were playing the festival and um, it was a, definitely a, a fun time for folks that worked there to spend time. And Shidith and I, you know, had an additional opportunity to connect during that fun evening. Yeah. Oh, and Joe was vegan. Like I was vegetarian at the time and Joe was vegan. So we, we had to, in those days, there was hardly anywhere you could go eat vegan food. So mm -hmm. we had to do a lot of cooking together. We also ate a lot of hummus sandwiches at the brick store. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start actually growing food? Yeah. So when Judith and I first met, we were really interested in this idea, which is kind of ironic at the moment with what we've done. But we had this we had hatched this plan to, to live abroad and, you know, get some experience doing that. And Judith was studying linguistics at Georgia State University and could effectively teach English as a foreign language. 
with this plan in mind. And I didn't, I didn't really have much of a skill set. So I thought I could maybe learn a little bit about farming. And uh, initially, I had sort of like conceived of it being a volunteer thing. Uh, but I, once again, at the Brickstore Pub, we worked with a woman that was connected to an organic farm that sold at the Morningside Farmers Market, a farm called Crystal Organic Farm. Oh my God, I love Nicholas. Yes. Yeah, Nicholas mm. is the best. And uh, and so I, this woman connected me with Nicholas, and uh, he asked me to come meet him at the Morningside Market. And I told him I was interested in volunteering. Uh, and he said, well, why don't you just come out a couple of days a week and you can just work here part time. So that was my first experience farming was working with Nicholas and he had a small crew during that time. And his young children also helped on the farm as well, too. And his mom, you know, European, no? yeah, yeah, the was matriarch was there and uh, and kind of. For me, a big part of what sold me on wanting to work at Crystal Organic Farm more was the world kind of lived at Crystal Organic Farm. So to your point, uh, Nicholas's mom is Austrian. He's Belgian. They speak French together uh, mm -hmm. as sort of their common language. Mm -hmm. um, they would have visitors and speak German and Italian. And I worked every day with a guy from Veracruz, Mexico, and we spoke you know, Spanish and English or a mix of the two. And, um, and while, you know, that dream to live abroad and travel more was still there, I think it was really sinking in that, you know, there are a lot of really unique cultural opportunities, just being outside, doing good work, growing things, uh, working on a farm. And Nicholas grows a lot of really interesting vegetables. I mean, like you see increasingly, with his new, I don't know what the guy's position is, but I mean, they really are pushing the envelope in terms of like bringing more Asian vegetables into the market. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, just as someone who goes to all of these markets, like the amount of variety that we have now is crazy versus when I just used to go, you know, to the farm stand or to Morningside to see Nicholas. But what is it about growing food specifically and getting your hands like dirty that and, and there's like some picture of your hands I think I remember wasn't there like a picture of your hands like all dirty that somebody took I can't remember it was like really stunning or you just had posted a picture but I mean it like seems to be something that's like love for you guys and like why is the farm named love is love by the way like what I never asked well there's a really great origin story to the farm name and but really quickly to maybe go back to like some of what the inspiration for working with your hands, working with soil. You know, for me personally, it's really been about working with other people mm. um, and connecting with them, accomplishing things that seem perceivably impossible, you know, getting, you know, getting a 200 foot row of something planted or weeded or picked and then, um, you know, transitioning, you know, from one thing to another and like the systems you know that orchestrate but all those things but also it's you know just just watching people you know like their interests come out and you know you're working with somebody outside and there's a story about their childhood or they share their passion for something or maybe we're picking something that they really they're really fond of or maybe they've never tried you know and they are like oh well maybe I'll give that a shot but we shows that actually I'll let Judith tell I think she tells the story better about how we chose the name <laughs> well uh, and I, I will tell the story about how we chose our name but I also I want to make this point about like the I think for both of us but maybe even more so for me the moment that lightning struck or maybe in homage to Rashid Nuri I'll say our our burning bush moment was when we went through Nicholas, when Joe was still working at Crystal Organic, we went to our very first Georgia Organics conference. And Janice Ray, who is a brilliant writer from Georgia, who wrote a beautiful book, has written many beautiful books, but the first one I knew of was called Ecology of a Cracker Childhood. She was the keynote speaker at this conference, and she just gave this wholehearted, on-fire speech about the importance of local food and the importance of local economy and the importance of people doing 
the work to make the world more of what they want it to be. And she's a brilliant speaker in addition to being a brilliant writer. And it, I think, especially, like I said, especially for me, it's really when I was able to connect the dots about food and farming as activism, as this way of making the world more of what you want to be, of being who you, a person who lives with aligned values across their work and their, you know, their choices. So I think that was really, like I said, for me, that's when lightning struck and I was like, oh, this is, this is like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is our thing. And I remember I was so excited about it that I actually like wrote an, a letter to the editor of the Sevenonda newspaper about <laughs> what a great speech this was. And they published it. And I was like, why, why did you publish that? Kirk, who is the, man, the general manager at the time, was like, seemed like you really had an important thing that you wanted to say. And I wanted to give you an opportunity. So, but the farm name came really uh, kind of out of urgency and desperation, but also just out of like a real sincere love of music and of a particular song called Love is Love. Okay. So it was the night before market, our very first market at Peachtree Road. And we had just, we'd been going back and forth about what's our farm name going to be and had all these different ideas, but could never really settle on something. And so Joe actually had the brilliant idea of, he was like, let's just get out our record collection and start flipping through records and see if we come up with any ideas. And uh, we had lots of good ones. And we landed on Love is Love. It's like, as soon as he said it, we were like, yes, that's it. Um, so we painted it on a piece of wood. We happened to have some pink paint and we painted it on a piece of wood that we found laying around the farm and we took it to market and that was our sign. I mean, you guys do though seem to have like a real love of the industry. I mean, Judith, I mean, you've held so many interesting positions. Like, I mean, everything from working for the Hopkins to Slow Food Atlanta to Wholesome Waved, I mean, you have had some really high up positions. Right now, what is your focus going to be just on Love is Love, the new farm? Or are you going to be doing other things as well? Well, you know, in some ways, it, it's all been kind of stirred up and it's, it's resettling. So I don't know. No one knows what the future is. And I certainly don't. Where I am right now is I have a startup called Small Bites Adventure Club that does this nutrition education stuff. And we create kits for kids um, to explore fruits and vegetables. I love the mission. I'm currently working there you know, about half time. And I'm currently focused on the farm about half time. But as we get deeper and deeper into standing up this farm, you know, in some ways it's becoming clear to me that I'm going to have to make some decisions <laughs> about how to allocate my time. So, yeah. I mean, don't we all? <laughs> Saying no is a, is a real superpower. I'm very bad at it. Um, Yes. Somebody said, like somebody tweeted today, they're like, I said no, and I felt nothing. And I, and it was like, you know, a really like a real accomplishment. There was no regret, you know, I'm saying right. no to a great assignment or something. But I mean, you, could you talk about Wholesome Wave? I'm very just yeah. interested in Wholesome Wave Georgia and, and, and the work that you have done there and would just love to hear why it was meaningful to you. Mm -hmm, for sure. I think food access and the question especially in the context of local food, in the context of direct sales, like buying food directly from farms, the, the question of food access and who, who has the right to healthy food and who has um, the ability to participate in this local food economy was something that Joe and I were wrestling with early on and, and lots of other people too. Um, and, and to some extent, every people are still wrestling with and the uh, you know the other side of that question is like you know who has a right to earn a living and and there were often times in the early days especially where we would hear like well you know certain people can't afford your food so you need to lower your prices and i don't think that's the solution because farmers already are not making a lot of money. You know what I mean? It was like, there's, there's not a huge margin to cut. Like we're basically just getting by. And in some cases doing this 
for reasons other than financial gain. Like this is this is a calling. There is passion for the work from every single farmer I know. And they also oftentimes, more often than not, have accepted the fact that the gains come, the wealth is built in other things, not in mm. making money, right? So a group of people, including Jonathan Tesher and Kate Barney and me and Gina Hopkins, Jonathan Tesher and I especially had really been wrestling with it for a while. And he had started the East Atlanta Village Farmers Market. And it was the first farmers market in the state to accept SNAP at the market. Which and is, we were, could you tell people what SNAP is if they don't know? Because some people might not. SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's the USDA program that provides um, funding for food to many families across the country. A lot of people know it as food stamps. So at the same time, uh, through my amazing friend, Angie Moser, I had met this guy named Michelle Nishan, who had started this organization nationally called Wholesome Wave. And basically what Wholesome Wave was doing was saying, okay, we want to support farmers and we want to make food accessible. So how do we do that? Okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to leverage SNAP, so this public benefit, and we're going to match it with private dollars. So basically anyone on SNAP can double. There's two ways of looking at it. And right now what Wholesome Wave Georgia says is you you get everything for 50% off basically because you go to the market and you swipe your SNAP card and the market matches whatever you decide you want to spend. So if you want to spend $5 from SNAP, you get 10 to spend at the market. And that way you're not asking the farmers to cut their price and people are getting access. So I met Michelle Nishan and I was like, this is, this idea is fire. We have to do this in Georgia. And then like, it just all started lining up and there was this group of people who are interested. Gina was willing to champion it, which was very, very helpful at the time because just of the cachet of the restaurant and having the Hopkins behind it, you know, otherwise it would have been like a bunch of, you know, kids talking about <laughs> like why this is important, you know, and one of them married to a man with dreadlocks. Like, you know, I just don't think we would have gotten as far as fast. <laughs> no offense. Sorry. <laughs> He's like, I accept. But something that's really interesting that you just said is that, you know, this is for a lot of these people and for yourself is a calling and that this is also a form of activism can you talk about how farming can be activism? I, I don't know that I'm going to do it justice. There's so None of us are experts, you know? I, nobody's no. expecting you to be an expert here, just your perspective. For sure. So many ways to approach it. And there's so many people that have inspired us here in Atlanta and across Georgia and sort of their engagement around activism in their local communities. But, you know, I, I mean, d definitely the, the relationship to soil and the relationship to natural natural resources and place, I think, are a big part of how farming is, you know, activism. I think it's, you know, we we consume all these things daily, and it's oftentimes it's hard to know what the origin was or whose hands were involved in growing them or making that these things. And and I think, you know, what farmers do is, you know, they plant a flag in the place that they're doing this work and they look at the soil and they don't see, they, they see opportunity um, and they see something that they can add value to through effort, but also through care of plants or care of animals. And, you know, you can't really have any of these, you can't have healthy soil. You can't have healthy plants or animals without having, you know, other resources like water and air uh, and then maybe for some of those things, food to to offer. And so like all farmers are addressing this on some level. And I would say that, you know, part of the connection to place for local, farm, or local farmers is they're trying to address them where they are and looking for resources or community connections to, you know, solve those problems. So, you know, like on our farm, you know, we we need fertility for our potting soil. So we get some worm castings from our friend Will Hadaway, who has a worm farm in, in Waverly, in Auburn, Alabama, basically. 
and really just like like all these you know a lot in a lot of ways you know like the also the labor on the farm i think is a big part of sort of community connection and connection to place as well too because you you know you as you know for me a big part of my enjoyment has always been like i said working with people on the farm and so you know looking around you know and like trying to find people that are also interested in doing this work and interested in in coming and and showing up and you know for us a, a big you know many people that have found their way to the farm you know either have like have grown up here in atlanta and you know would you know want to see you know a bright atlanta in the future that has room for these types of green spaces and you know they all bring their own interests and sort of add to the overall relevance of these spaces um, that are being cared for. And I think there's also, um, I mean, there's so many levels, like there's also like creating nutritious food is activism. Right. And mm -hmm. I mean, when Joe first started working at Crystal, we were eating a lot more organic food and I truly believe this. <laughs> I believe that I had a consciousness shift and I believe that it is related to the quality of the food that we were eating. I also think there's just the, the activism of stepping outside of this, like bigger is always better mode of thinking about business and thinking about growth, um, you know, and, and having direct relationship with your customers is a form of activism, you know? I mean, I say that acknowledging that we're about to scale up, but, you know, we're scaling up to 20 acres of production from two acres of production. We're not ever interested in having, you know, a 35 row combine that is GPS program <laughs> that we don't even have to sit in. Right. That's not what you're setting out to do. And no. this is not a this is not a wealth like financial wealth building enterprise. But no. you are scaling up to 20 acres, and this is also going to be a co-op, right? So what's different about that? Because that's got to be about relationships right there, you know, with your employee or co-owners. I guess it would be no. Yes. Yeah, we're all yeah. worker owners. That's awesome. Yeah. And why did you guys decide to do that? Once again, a, a big part of it was, you know, an interest in working with people and really an interest in just a passion for farmers, you know, and, and, and what they do. And because we're going to grow this operation, you know, to something larger than we've done before and other people around the state, you know, are, are definitely growing on the scale too. But what we thought was the best way to leverage our experiences was to find a group of growers that were like-minded and wanted to build, build something together. And I think a big part of our secret sauce is that, you know, and we're not, you know, there are other cooperatives out there and, and, and particular other, other farmers cooperating in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. But, you know, in order to see this scale opportunity, we weren't, you know, we were really looking to bring together a group with a lot of different experiences that could, you know, all bring that experience together and create a plan that would ultimately help us do it in an efficient manner and like to sort of speed things along, but also sort of to think about the longevity of what we're setting out to do. And by having a cooperative be the enterprise, it's, you know, it's not just dependent on any one of us to keep it going or to give mm -hmm. up, you know, the week, weekday off, weekend off or the vacation or having children or being able to retire. You know, we, you know, by, by all of us coming together, we think that we can be very productive, but also have, you know, some relative quality of life that helps keep us, in this and interested and and feeling inspired to bring you know our our best selves to the farm every day i mean it definitely sounds like work-life balance is what everyone is striving for right now so i can imagine that even on the farming level it's important because it's hard work but something you guys said in that email that you wrote to announce the transition um, or the growth or the evolution if you will was that there's just been so many ways that people in atlanta have helped you 
And I feel like people that, you know, listeners that are not from Atlanta and maybe even people in Atlanta don't understand what the community is like here, not only with the farmers, but also within the, just the culinary industry. Can you guys just both speak to what makes Atlanta or even just Georgia rather mm -hmm. special? Because I mean, like when I was growing up, I grew up here, I moved here in 78, as you guys both know, because we've talked about it with my parents from, from uh, Mexico immigrated here. And um, I don't really remember being in love with Georgia produce like I am now at 45. Like, I feel like your generation of farmers really just kind of turned up the notch on, I hate to say farm to table, but just like eating locally. Like, I feel like I can't remember any farmers before I met you guys, if that makes sense, your generation rather. Mm -hmm. So could you speak to your generation of Georgia farmers and then just your relationship to the Georgia industry overall? I want to go back to or where you started with the thread. And I don't know exactly why, but I do think there is a level of genuine hospitality within and among the food business owners for the most part in Atlanta I mean, we hear, especially in the restaurant business and sometimes even in the farming industry business, we hear like, we don't have the, you know, we hear from place, people who are in other places tell us, we don't have what y'all have. Mm -hmm. Y'all support each other. Y'all root for each other. And for the most part, that's true. And it, you know, I can't say what it's like in other places, but I do feel, you know, I feel love and camaraderie with all the other farmers I don't feel a sense of competition. Um, you know, we definitely have this, like that rising tide floats all ships mentality. It's like, let's build it together. Let's make it better together. And I think you see that in the restaurant business too. And I, I value it. I'm grateful for it. And I'm also protective of it. So sometimes Me too. there will be some <laughs> little, you know, snarky outsider that starts to chew at it. And I get real mad, yeah. real mad. Samesies. But it is like this really amazing, I don't know if it's just because I started really paying more attention to it, probably because, you know, but I think that there was like this really amazing shift between, like I said, your generation of farmers and the chefs at the time. If you want to say like Stephen Satterfield, for instance, like that same trajectory, I feel like Georgia food really evolved mm -hmm. because sure. of what people were growing. And because of the leadership. You know, I mean, and, it, and leadership on both sides, you know, like I think there was culinary leadership and even, you know, like you think about Chef Scott Peacock and, and the, what he was saying about food and how letting the ingredients shine was the best use of food, you know, and, and I think you see that thread stitched through Stephen's food for sure. Like, I, I don't think he would question that he was influenced by his time at Watershed and, and at the same time, farmers were like, okay, I can bring it if, if that's what you want. I also think that, you know, there was this really beautiful, a wave is the only way that I can describe it. Like there was this wave of, I and mean, you saw it, like how many more farmers markets opened? How many more oh my farmers gosh. came, became interested in it? And um, you also worked with community farmers markets, no? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Which can you just give a little blurb for people who don't know what it is? So Community Farmers Markets is like an umbrella farmers market organization in Atlanta. And it was really created at that time that like, you know, every single neighborhood in Atlanta was like, we want to open a farmers market, which was great and thrilling. And also it was saturating the market. And we wanted to create a way to leverage efficiencies across multiple markets and maybe help curate, if that's the right word, I don't know unique neighborhood experiences so that everything wasn't just getting replicated again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And Grant Park is part of that, right? Grant Park is part of community or no? Yeah. East Atlanta okay. Village, Grant Park, uh, the Pont City Market, Decatur Farmers Market, Oakhurst Farmers Market, and a new one in Virginia Highlands. Oh, great. Gosh, there's so many. Far I really can't keep up with the amount of farmers markets there are now. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. This is my interview with Judith Winfrey and Joe Reynolds. But another place that I have gotten to know you more um, on a personal level has been the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposiums, which mm. you are like a main fixture at. Can you talk about what it is that they do and why it's so important as it relates to Southern food and the people behind it? 
Yeah. I will talk about, there's no way for me to talk about the SFA, the Southern Food Boys Alliance, without talking about my dad. And my dad was the son of a one-armed sharecropper from Northeast Georgia, grew up very, very poor and very ashamed of it, and loved banana pudding, loved grits, loved pulled pork, loved fried chicken. And all of those foods were like so like deeply ingrained in who I was and my understanding of myself and my understanding of my family narrative. And they also came with shame. They came with shame for like not being high culture foods, for, you know, being the foods in my experience of poor white people. And I found this organization through my friend, Angie Mosier. <laughs> your Yo, I wanted to ask you about too, because I was, that was my next question was about your relationship with Angie. Cause I find it very interesting that you're both food people, but, but yeah. back to this. <laughs> and I was like, you know, they were like singing the praises of banana pudding and all of this food that I knew and loved. And they were like, yeah, this is good. And I was like, Oh, okay, let's dive into this. And then as they're telling these stories, they're telling more and more stories just about the South, about the culture of the South through the food, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I will say for me, the Southern Foodways Alliance was the very first place that I felt challenged, inspired, led to think about some of the most challenging issues around the South, like the exploitation of uh, enslaved people and uh, the exploitation of agriculture, agricultural workers today. I mean, all of those questions get grappled with at the SFA. And I think um, I've learned a lot there. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so loyal. That and the food is delicious. I mean, the food and it's is not just so banana pudding and fried chicken. No, it's like crazy, like so many different cuisines and every, every year is a different theme, like Latinos in the South or, I mean, it's a really, I'm hoping to go back to a symposium soon. Yeah, that would be nice. But someone I always see you with at these symposiums is Angie Mosier, who is a food stylist and photographer. Would that be an accurate way to describe her? Although that seems very simplistic for her charisma. <laughs> I think that, that is true. Technically, I, I also I think of Angie is a um, she really is a creative genius. Like things that have come out of her brain have become institutions. Like um, what would you give an example? Uh, La Dame de Scoffier Afternoon in the Country. That was mm -hmm. her like the original very first one at Serenby was all her brain. The Wholesome Way of Georgia Southern Chefs Potluck. That was Angie's creativity. And you guys have known each other for how long? A very long time. <laughs> like um, since you were teenagers? Yeah. So I was like uh, 14, I think, when I met Angie. But like food seems to also be like this. I mean, aside from just knowing each other this long, I mean, how cool is it to have like food in common with like someone that's such a dear friend? Yeah, it's wonderful. And I can't, there's no doubt in my mind that, my life path and who I am has been inspired by and yeah, well, we'll just leave it at my life path has been inspired by Angie. And she was the first one who ever said to me, like, I think I want to check out this SFA thing. And I think the reason we're such good friends is partly because we, you know, we grapple with a lot of the same issues about how we grew up and where we grew up and who our people are. And, and we're both passionate about food and we're both kind of irreverent. You both are definitely irreverent, which is why I like you both so much. But just kind of going back, something I always ask people, and I definitely want to know with both of you guys is, you know, when did you just know that food was going to be a thing for you? When was food? When did I know it? When I was in, so my family has a really different story than, than Judith's does. And I think I've told you about it before, Jennifer, but I, mm -hmm. I grew up with, you know, with my family being in the military. And so my parents had definitely food stories that they shared with us, but I 
never really grew up in any of those places. One's from Austin, Texas. The other's from the suburbs of Philadelphia. But our journey as a family moved us from place to place as my dad, my dad got relocated to different bases. So we had a chance to live a lot of really cool places. And I don't have a lot of huge memories around them, but I can, I can only imagine I was a little bit influenced by what we saw. But as a, you know, a youngster, we lived in Japan and England and New Mexico and South Florida. And then ultimately we landed in South Georgia and my family all, all mostly lives down there in, in Valdosta, Georgia. And it was nice, you know, for my family to, you know, finally get roots and a home. And, you know, my brothers have children now, but I, I went to school uh, at Valdosta State University, right there in the heart of Valdosta. And I studied uh, anthropology. And during that time, there were a couple of uh, study abroad sort of field schools that were offered. And it gave me a chance to do some traveling, you know, outside of my family with a group of students. So eating food and one of the places I had a chance to go to was to Jerusalem and, uh, and, pa- and Palestine and is- Israel as well. But, you know, eating, you know, just delicious falafel and meza in the old city in Jerusalem, you know, like was definitely and having that kind of a meal laid out really deeply, you know, connected with me. And then another chance I had to do this was to, to go on a traveling field school uh, across Belize and, you know, just experiencing rice and beans in a completely different way than I had because I was vegetarian at the time, but I, uh, I did not elevate it in the same way um, <laughs> that I did in Belize by, you know, using, you know, coconut rice, coconut mm. oil to cook the beans or coconut mm. milk to cook the rice. And um, God, I would using, die. Like, habanera sauce uh, to sort of put on there and... Um, and so those things really got me thinking, like, how can I have more of these experiences? So that's that's sort of what hooked me. I love that. I didn't know that you lived in Japan. That's rad. I'm jealous. <laughs> I was young. I, I get really excited. My parents were also very young at the time, too. So I, you know, I like to envision, you know, basically two young 20 year olds, you know, <laughs> figuring out life, walking around Okinawa, Japan. But that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. (laughs) So cute. (laughs) This is way off script, but I am going to show you this. Oh, you can't see. There's a little. I can. Oh, it's very cute. I love it. (laughs) My parents met in Japan, too. My parents were set up on a blind date in Tokyo when they were both living there. Oh, wow. Yeah, they had met when they were like. 14 and 19 in Mexico city. And my mom was like, Ooh, he's like the worst. And then they got set up on a date in Tokyo. And they actually took my sister and I to the cafe where they met. And I took this really awkward blurry photo of them, like shaking hands in front of the cafe, which is still there, but I digress. So Judith, what was your story about when you knew food was going to be a thing for you? You had time to think. (laughs) Food was definitely a love language for my family. And, and, you know, my, my childhood and my food memories are so intertwined and, and most of my happy memories in, from childhood have to do with food and expressions of love through food or exploring food, simple things. But, you know, my mom was a very good cook and she had a catering company for a while. Um, so, you know, smelling biscuits, baking for a catering gig she was doing, it was like a pretty frequent thing as I was growing up. So I always loved food. I Because partly my mom had catered and done other food businesses, I was strongly urged not to work in food. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't until, um, you know, I was like in my mid twenties. And when I went to work at the brick store while I was finishing up college, and then I really don't think I thought that I would work, work in food until we decided that farming was it, you know? And then from there, I was able to, you know, when we our farm flooded really badly, as you know, mm-hmm. and it was pretty devastating. And we, at that time, made the decision for me to go back to work. I got the opportunity to work in the restaurant business. I worked my way up to a pretty big role. You've been very successful. Yeah. 
or just I don't know. <laughs> like bold. don't say don't say lucky because it takes hard work. So no, you know. I was gonna be more like sort of boldly foolhardy. I was like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> all right. Uh, but anyway, that was really at the you know having the farm business was an entrepreneurial endeavor that sort of gave me an appreciation for entrepreneurial endeavors. And then I think it's also what made it possible to do work my way up at these other places and do these other things is because I sort of understood what a business owner needs, which is like someone to really care as much as they do and be willing to care about the business, care about it. And you guys seem to care about love is love a lot. And I mean, this is a very exciting chapter that you are starting. Is this, you know, can your, I guess I don't want to say customers. I'm, I am a customer. I buy your plants because they are really, if you are a home gardener, the best vegetable seedlings you can get in Atlanta because they actually are taken care of with love. You can tell. I mean, you buy something generic at Pike and then you put it next to one of your seedlings and they're just so much healthier and happier. And I'm sure I'm going to end up killing mine because trellising tomatoes is painful. But what can people expect from the new endeavor? And is there anything you guys want to plug? I've seen on some of your communication that you're looking for shareholders. Do you want to talk to that? Or just what's up, uh, you know, in the new chapter? I'll go ahead and kick it off. So um, a big part of what motivates us and the marketplace is our community of CSA customers. So community supported agriculture or folks that seasonally subscribe. And, you know, that for us will be a growth point in the next couple of months, but especially going into next year. So, uh, you know, we'd love for folks to consider becoming our member uh, for a season. Uh, I think you'll really, you'd really enjoy enjoy it. It definitely is. You get a variety of things and it's definitely makes you a very good kitchen sink cook because you'll get some mix of different mix of vegetables every single week. We also are going to continue to grow the with the plant sale like it. And thank you so much for shopping with us, Jennifer, and for all the folks that shop with us. It's, it's really, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun, especially historically, I've been the one that curates that list. And it's a way for us to have a lot of fun variety and just, you know, grow things that are unique and from a lot of different cool parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the Calabrian chili pepper plant that I got this year, which is probably my favorite thing I've ever grown. Now it's so healthy and happy. And I, I don't think you can find a Calabrian chili pepper plant anywhere else in Atlanta, but um, can you tell people how to sign up? for the CSA? How much it costs? How did they pick it up? Is it delivery? Sure, sure. So we um, look for us at loveislovefarm.com. Um, also on social media, we'll probably put information out there. We're on Instagram, we're at loveislovefarm, loveislovefarm on Facebook. And we essentially have, um, we ask you to subscribe for a 16 week, 16 week season. Um, and it's, uh, for a full share, it's about $30 a week for a half share. It's around $19 a week. You know, both shares get a pretty big, get about six or between six and eight produce items weekly. And then we also love to collaborate with other farmers. So we offer things like an egg share from our friends at rise and shine farm, a meat share, um, with, uh, pork, pasture pork from our friends at Riverview farms grass-fed beef from our friends at Swanson Family Farms, and then some delicious bread products from our friends at Simple Bread Company. And then, you know, we try to like add in a little bit of variety that you can uh, procure weekly in addition to your share. Yeah, I I think like the website and social media are probably the two easiest places to sort of see what those, when we're making those shares available uh, would be. And then for the plant sale, we... uh, we will be moving our fall plant sale out to the new farm in Mansfield. So everybody gets a chance to come and see this beautiful property and meet our, our co-op partners, who I would be remiss if we didn't name here. Um, do, yeah. They're some of the best farmers and we're really excited to continue to partner with them. But uh, a young man that's worked with us for the last couple of years and has a big education and work experience behind him named Demetrius Milling, uh, who's from Atlanta. Another incredible farmer, farmer, Monica Ponce, born in Carrollton, and her family has uh, restaurants around Atlanta, and she grew up working in them, but has uh, worked on some of the fiercest farms around, including Rogers Greens and Roots. Um, They're so prolific. 
Yeah, in, uh, in Douglasville. And um, uh, yeah, Ashley Rogers is a champ. And then um, Russell Hondard, who uh, is also an Atlanta native and uh, went to go uh, have a, and like a, go through like an organic training apprenticeship in Michigan and came back here to start the farm in Winston, Georgia for the King of Pops fellas, uh, King of Crops. Um, and Monica and Russell also just came back from being the farmers at the Grayfield Inn on Cumberland Island. So wow. if they can grow produce anywhere. Uh, <laughs> you can grow it on, uh, on Cumberland Island where sometimes even the water table can be, can be challenging. And uh, so you come on out. So we'll have the fall plant sale uh, out at the new farm. You'll get a chance to see it. It'll be outdoor, open air. We hope to have some festivities around it as well. And, uh, and you know, you can have a really cool day just 45 minutes east of here. And it's the country. It's also, you know, traditionally our plant sale has been on farm. People come and they browse and they pick up. But during the COVID time, we had to do this like, you know, you order online and you we pack it for you and it's contactless pickup. Um, and I, I think we'll keep some of that because people like being able to pre-order, but we'll also, people will have the opportunity to shop and browse and just, you know, be in community again, which I know we all are looking for. Yeah, we all miss that. Yeah. I would like to say a little bit about, you know, Love is Love Cooperative Farm and the wealth that we're thinking of building and how we're trying to fund it. If you, do we have time to do that? Please do. This is, no. this is your, I plug whatever you want. Right. Like serious. I'm just trying to like help people. I'm not making any money off of this. <laughs> so, so go on and on and on is what I'm saying. Yes. Okay. So we, um, farmers like us who started as landless farmers who don't have inherited wealth, including inherited land, like, there, there are a lot of challenges and barriers to getting a farm going. I mean, as Joe said earlier, we we were lucky enough to be able to find farms with great infrastructure where we could start our farm business. There aren't many opportunities out there like that. Access to land is a big barrier. Access to skilled labor is a big barrier. There are, and not just the skill, but like the willingness, because it is hard physical work and you have to deal with whatever mother nature gives you in terms of weather or anything else, really. So the access to people who have the skills to do the work and want to do the work is a big challenge. And then the access to capital is a big challenge, especially when you're trying to start up an operation. And there are lots of different ways to address all of those barriers. The way we've been able to do it is the worker-owned cooperative sort of helps us with this question of skilled labor and access to skilled labor. It also helps with questions of equity and pathways to pathways to equity for farm workers. We've been lucky enough to work with this organization called the Conservation Fund, mm -hmm. which is a national nonprofit that mostly does land preservation in wilderness places and in parks. They've done a lot of interesting projects around the country. They have this brand new fund called the Working Farms Fund that's intended to get landless farmers or farmers who want to scale onto more farmland. Um, so we've been the very first organization or the very first farm to go through this program um, which we, we think is an honor, and they have helped us access the land. And one cool thing, another cool thing about the land, it will be permanently conserved. So it will be protected from development forever, and that's part of what that partnership is about. Um, so we have the team, and we have the land, and need capital. We need capital to be able to buy equipment, tractors and high tunnels and greenhouses and wells and electricity and irrigation. I mean, there's so many things to getting a farm up and running beyond just farmland. We also just, you know, need working capital to be able to work on it and get it all going. And we, there's lots of different ways to, to access the capital um, because we're a worker-owned cooperative and because the state we live in has something called the Georgia Securities Exemption Act, 
um, which means we can ask residents of Georgia to invest in our business um, mm. without having to go through the SEC. And there's like there's constraints around it, but we thought it would be a really interesting opportunity, um, an experiment really, to sell preferred shares to the farm. And so that's the capital campaign that we're in right now. It's been pretty amazing. Uh, the number of people from our customer base, our CSA customers, our um, plant sale customers who have just reached out to us and said like, yes, we're interested. How do we support? What do we do? Um, and then even people from the broader community. And, you know, we have about a year to raise everything we want to raise. And I feel, I'm feeling very optimistic that we can do it. And I'm feeling excited about it because I don't know, it, to me, it's like a really, really interesting model and hopefully a model that can be replicated by other farms and other communities because what we're really all creating together, the preferred shareholders, the farmers, the conservation fund is a community asset, right? Like we've got this farm that's going to be preserved forever. And because of the worker owner structure, we have a way for new farmers to continually step in. So I think if we're successful, what we're trying to create is this kind of new family farm that doesn't have to grapple with that question of what if nobody in the family wants to farm mm. anymore? Oh, that's a really interesting reframe. Right. Because it is. Some people just don't want to go and work on the family farm. And then what happens? Right. Yeah. That's so. a really interesting perspective. I didn't think of it that way. So if people want to donate, they need to mm -hmm. contact you, Judith. Yeah, if people want to participate, um, they can send me an email. Okay. <laughs> they can go to our website, and if you go to loveisloveFarm.com backslash support, there's more information. They can contact me through that. Um, they can make just a contribution, or they can get more information about becoming a shareholder. And you said you have a year to do this, basically. We do. So. All right. So that's the term. Well, I really appreciate your time and congrats on the, the new farm. You know, I'm a big fan of both of you. Wow. Right back at you. Totally. Thank you for your time. Thanks for your interest. This has been fun. That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Judith and Joe for joining me. You can keep up with them as Love is Love Farm on Instagram. If you want to keep up with me, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find us. Next Wednesday, I'm joined by Lindsay Green Mosier, aka The Hunger Diaries, aka Cake 2 Fitness. We discuss mukbangs, having your cake and eating it too, the perils of internet stardom, and body image. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.